Please join us in a moment of silence for Calvin Parker. Calvin died August 24th, 2023, at the age of 68. We present this show in his honor. program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states in the United States. When the lights go down, the paranormal comes alive. There's not an alien force already among us. Major sighting here. There's something out here. Can you repeat that, Commander Bell? It's coming at me. Dark depths of a secret dungeon deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. You're traveling somewhere between abnormal and paranormal into the paranormal. We are controlling transmission. It's a tale of a close encounter and of an alien abduction, dare we call it, but not just any encounter. No, a fishing trip on the Pascagoula River in Mississippi, October 11th, 1973. It was certainly uh, an event that Calvin Parker and his friend Charles Hickson would never forget. In the early evening, a strange craft descended and hovered a few feet above the ground, just a few yards away from them. An opening appeared in the craft and outfloated three humanoid creatures. Both men were absolutely terrified, as you can probably imagine, when these creatures grabbed them and took them aboard the craft, where they were subjected to an examination and feared they were about to die. Minutes later, Calvin and Charles were deposited back on the riverbank, and the craft departed. Taking off in their car, they located a public telephone and phoned the sheriff. While still disoriented, they were interviewed at the sheriff's office, and the next day, all hell broke loose as the press descended on this unsuspecting Mississippi town. Parker was seriously disturbed and stayed out of the spotlight for decades. Over the past two years since coming forward, the Pascagoula encounter has emerged from the depths where it was almost forgotten to be among the best documented cases of its kind in the world. Because of Calvin's two books, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, and Pascagoula, The Story Continues, a whole raft of new information has been uncovered, including documentations, photographs, hypnosis tapes, and a plethora of first-hand eyewitnesses. The popularity of the story is certainly evident uh, by a TV documentary and a movie screenplay that are in the works. It's my privilege to welcome into the paranormal Calvin Parker. Hello, sir. Hello. How are y'all doing today? Fantastic. Good, because I get to talk to you, and we get to uh, advance your story. We've done one show about a year ago, and I was just absolutely mesmerized by your story. And it seems to be, um, ever since we had that conversation, I mean, your story literally has gone all around the world and back. It has. It's in Right now, it's in several different uh, countries and several different languages. And every day, something always pops up whether it's a strange visitor from uh, that just wants to come by to talk or 
somebody wanting to do different shows. It's just amazing to me. I never figured it would take off like this. So tell us about what is in the works. There's a uh, documentary that's coming out the first of the year. And then, of course, we've been working on a uh, screenplay, trying to get it together for uh, a possible movie deal. You know, nothing written in stone yet. And first, we got to do our part and get everything done. But uh, we got a guy that's pitching it right now, and he seems to think that it's going to go pretty good. What our problem's been, though, Philip and I are trying to stay as close to the facts as what we can. And it's hard to do. And, you know, if you sell it to a movie, uh, someone that makes movies, it's going to be a little bit off. It's going to be a little bit different. But as long as the details are there, that's all we care about. Are they trying to sexify it for this for you know Hollywood, so to speak? Well, I don't. I'm sure they will. I don't know yet. It's just uh, because you know. Just, I mean, when you when you look at movies, Fire in the Sky was the very famous movie made after Travis Walton's uh, incident, and not everything in that movie is entirely accurate. Yeah, and it's going to be hard to get a movie that's entirely accurate on anything. And I didn't realize that up until <clears throat> we had started working on this. And I wanted to keep everything to the T, but it's kind of like, you know, Philip had suggested to me, uh, they might not be exactly the same number of policemen that picked you up or the same doctor's name that got you. You know, it might be little changes here and there. But as far as the abduction part and what's been going on in my life and our lives, you know, I want that as close as what we can get it. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, you you waited an awful long time before coming out and, and telling your story. Why was that? Well, number one, when this story broke, the news media pounded me. I was engaged to get married. This happened in October. I was engaged to get married in November, and her daddy was a real trip. I mean, he would have pulled my head off. So I really didn't want him to know about it. And where I worked, I didn't want them to know about it because here in the deep south, you get ridiculed pretty good for little bitty things. And uh, to me, that was major. And, you know, I just didn't want to talk about it. It was so upsetting. What has been the reaction to your story, Calvin? It's been amazing. Since this book came out, uh, you know, Philip and I started working on the book last year. Well, it's just been out a little over a year now. But we actually re was going to release it in September, but we ended up having to do it in July because somehow it got on the Amazon and out of popular demand, everybody wanted to copy. Now, to be honest, when I was doing this book, I didn't want to do the book. I did it for two reasons. I did it because I had Philip Mantle sitting on me, and I had my wife sitting on me. And, you know, but as far as me, I personally didn't want to do a book. I didn't want the publicity. I was a recluse. I just kind of like staying to myself and working. But when this thing hit the market, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it completely changed my life, turned it around. I would have to say it's probably one of the best things that's happened to me. I met so many different people, and I mean good people too, not people that you think would be uh, nuts and all that. Of course, I've met a few of them also, but 
most of the people that I've met and talked to are good down to earth business people. They're sincere, they're friendly, and there's been no, really no ridicule whatsoever. It's opened up my marriage. And you think about it, you keep a secret 45 years from a woman. Now, I, I didn't even tell my wife what had happened. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my friends. So this was a secret that sat on my chest for 45 years. And uh, I would get to look every now and then. I know every man that's married knows what the look is. And I would get that look every now and then. <clears throat> so when this book did come out, when her and Philip taught me into uh, doing it, it was actually a blessing. It pulled the chains off, and uh, it, it opened me up to the public, and that's where I wanted to be. I know I've been well accepted here on the coast. I didn't think Mississippi Gulf Coast. I didn't think I would be accepted there. Last October, we had a book signing, and people were lined up. They had they had the streets shut down, and it was cold. And people lined up down the block just to shake my hand, to meet me, to get my autograph. And uh, it's been going on just like that ever since to, since this has happened. But I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed getting out and meeting people and talking. But, again, I'm on a fact-hunting mission. And I figure the more people I talk to, uh, the closer I might get to finding an answer of some kind to what happened to me. But in you your know, mind, you know what happened, and you know it's real, and you know what you encountered that evening. Yes, sir. There's no doubt in my mind that it was a uh, life from another planet. But I had doubted it up until a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, in my mind now, I know without a doubt but I try, you know, after this happened, I tried to keep thinking, you know, this didn't happen to me. This, a couple of rednecks borrowed some kind of scary craft and got out riding around drinking beer. And they did this for a joke. And that's what I wanted to believe. I didn't want to think that somebody from another planet would come down and abduct you. Now, the biggest difference that I seen with this deal, after we wrote the book, I, I never have studied anything about abductions or looked at pictures of aliens, you know, unless it just happened to be something. The History Channel wasn't known. And back during this time, we didn't really have social media. So I started looking at pictures, and I thought, well, why didn't mine look like some of these? You know, I had to get uh, an ugly old robotic-looking creature that just kind of manhandles you and injects you with everything you want to. And... I thought a pretty decent-looking uh, southern uh, redneck that had abducted me. And when I say that, you know, the female alien, she looked more human uh, than what you would believe. And I, I've even said on different shows, you know, if I was a drinking man and was in a bar drinking and gonna, not married and going to pick up a woman, I might have picked her up and went on a date with her. Instead, she picked me up and went on a date. Yeah, uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna leave that one right there. Uh, so you were going fishing, uh, you and your buddy Charles. Describe the area you went to. Well, we had got off work that day and uh, went to the first place we went was the grain elevator, and they got these little bugs down here in the south. You can't see them at all, but they got to have the mouth 
the size of uh, my wife sometime. I mean, when they bite, they bite hard. And we couldn't stand it there. So we left there and went to an old abandoned shipyard, the old Shaw Peter shipyard, where uh, Charlie said he had been fishing for a good deal. And what that was was an abandoned shipyard. Uh, well, it was out of business. But, but people looked like they'd been dumping their trash there and all. And it was no trespassing signs. And, uh I said, Charlie, you know, we got no trespassing signs, and this place is a dump. He said, well, let me explain the dump to you. The water gets high, and it brings in all this debris. Then when it leaves, it leaves the debris positive. And as far as a no trespassing sign, it's been there for years. It's okay. So we decided to fish there. I took Charlie at his word, and that was my first mistake for the night was taking him at his word. I should have paid attention to trespassing sign and stayed away. But we walked down to the pier, pulled us up a log, I think, sat on the pier, and I was sitting there looking across the river at a big old ship. And I was thinking to myself, you know, me just going to work in the shipyard, now how does something made out of steel float? And that's when I noticed the blue hazy lights coming in from behind us. And uh, they're the same color as the lights on the patrol cars. So about that time, I guess Charlie noticed them too, and we both turned around and looked. And that's when just a real bright light just you thought You thought it was, uh, it was Johnny Law coming after you. I sure did, and I was already getting mad at Charlie. Matter of fact, I made the comment to Charlie real quickly, you're getting me out of jail. But – uh. I wish it had had been jail that he had to get me out of. That'd been better than where I was. So this light got so bright it was blinding, and I was thinking, I I wish it to myself. I wish I'd turn that spotlight off. But then we noticed coming out of this bright light where our eyes was kind of getting adjusted, three bulky looking creatures. Now, when I say bulky looking, that's what they were. They didn't have a neck. Their heads just sat solid down on their shoulders. And uh, they had kind of grayish, wrinkled skin. Now, Charlie's seen the face on them real good, and he described it later on. And uh, I seen an artist sketch where he just described it to Larry Flint later, what they looked like. Because I really didn't see the face because my eyes were still kind of blurred. Well, these things floated right across the top of that grass marsh grass and two of them got a hold of charles and one of them got a hold of myself immediately now i was scared to death by then i'm not gonna lie to nobody but immediately uh when he grabbed me by the arm i heard something like a little whoosh a little whoosh air or something and what that was and what we figured out later and what the doctors has figured out he gave us some kind of injection to uh kind of settle us down or a sedative or something for the moment. Well, this thing, I settled down and I couldn't move nothing but my head a little bit and roll my eyes a little. And he floated us to this craft. And I remember getting to the door and looking inside because I was wondering where all these bright lights was coming from. But it wasn't no light fixtures. They was just, it was the walls. The walls was illuminated up like you paint lights in into the walls 
And I was thinking, well, this is crazy. I'd like to know the electrician here. And, you know, all that kind of crossed through my mind because that's how settled I was when I got there. Well, he made a little left turn, took me down the hallway and made another little right turn. And it was one of the most beautiful tables I've ever seen in my life. And I call it an examination table and it's an examination room because that's pretty much what they did. But it was made out of glass or maybe crystal or something like that. And he laid me on this table with my head angled higher than my feet. And I've always said maybe a 16 to 45 degree angle. And I was laid there looking straight up at the ceiling. Now, this big, ugly creature, he done backed up against the wall and got solid. I mean, he just shut down, just like you turned the switch off of him. And that's what kind of made me think they was robotic. But out of the wall came something the size of a deck of cards. And it came down and it stopped probably a foot and a foot and a half from my forehead. Then it started revolving around my head. And as it would go around, it would click about four times. And then it got about a foot and a half in front of my eyes and just shot back up into the ceiling. What was it doing? You know, that I don't know. It was going around my head clicking all I know. Now, thinking after being in MRIs and things like that, I, you know, it could have been doing an examination of my brain or something, which if they knew what I had up there in my brain, they wouldn't examine nothing about it. They'd picked them somebody else. <laughs> but you know what's so, uh, so funny about this? I never had talked to Charlie about what happened to him. We never had the discussion about what happened. I never read Charlie's book when it came out. And uh, the other day I picked this book up, or I say the other day, probably a couple of months ago, and I read where he had a big eye that examined him. And I thought that was kind of amazing. He didn't describe it like a deck of cards. He described it like a big eye that was down and just looking over him. Now, I don't know if he thought it was a camera eye or what. But when this thing shot back up into the ceiling, for some reason, I just felt a presence that this wasn't over with yet, that like there was somebody else in the room or maybe more than one person. And I kind of rolled my head to the right to take a look. By then, this drug was starting to kind of wear off that he gave us a little bit. And I noticed a um, female-looking creature come and toward me to the examination tables. This was the one that you wanted to take on the date? Yeah, the one I wanted to (laughs) more or less take on the date. (sighs) And this might not have been a female, but you know how a man can sense a woman's presence and a woman can sense a man's. And uh, I just sensed that it was a female. Plus, later on, she telepathically talked to me, and it was in old Southern redneck girl's females, boys. So that's what made me think they might have studied me. And what what did she say? Well, she says, we're not going to harm you, but it was Southern redneck talk. Uh, I've always picked at Philip saying that, you know, he didn't talk real English and they're the ones that invented the English language. So uh, aliens have accents. Yeah, this one did. (laughs) But I think what they do, they study somebody 
and they trained herself where they're not so frightening to you when they get there. But what she did was way frightening to me. You know, she kind of come out, she felt my cheek a little bit. That's when I noticed her hands. Her She had normal hands where the other one didn't. But her two middle fingers on her hands was a little bit longer than uh, what's on a regular human's hands. And when she grabbed me by the cheek, I didn't feel no sensation, no warmth, no skin. I didn't feel had didn't have any feelings at all where she had grabbed me by the cheek. Now, the next thing she did, I had feelings pretty good there. She took her other hand and she put her finger across my chin and she pushed down. And then she took the right hand and she run it down my throat behind that little hang me down thing back there. Now, what they call that, I don't know, but, you know, I've had it swell up pretty bad, and it hurts pretty bad, but it hangs down right in the back of your throat. Oh, you the, tr- the trachea? I guess that's what it is. Lord, I don't know. <laughs> I know it can be painful when somebody's got their fingers you, up there behind it. Your, your windpipe, basically. Yeah, and right behind it is your sinus cavities, and the way I know that, because she was trying to come up in them, and it just cut my air completely off. I was gagging. My nose started bleeding. I mean, I, I was getting to be a pretty big mess. I couldn't catch my breath. But that's when she pulled her fingers out. And telepathically, now her mouth didn't move, but telepathically, she said, we're not going to harm you. All right, hold that thought. An alien with its fingers in his mouth, a female alien with a southern accent, Telling you that she is not here to harm you. The story of Pascagoula tonight. Calvin Parker, my guest. Philip Mantle will join us right after the break. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Just wait until Into the Pair of Normal continues. I'm Brad Bernards. When you're inside something, it's hard to see its shape. We're still finding out new things about the shape of our galaxy. In research published in Nature Astronomy, years of observational data, cosmological models, and physics suggest the galaxy is flat. Send a beam of photons out across the void, and it will just keep going in a straight line. A new study argues that the universe is actually curved and closed like an inflating sphere. The clue to the universe's curvature, they say, is in the way 
gravity bends the path of light, an effect predicted by Einstein called gravitational lensing. Not just any light either, but the cosmic microwave background. That's the electromagnetic radiation left over in the space between the stars and the galaxies, dating back to around 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe's first neutral atoms formed. Once you block out all the other sources of light, space glows really faintly, a sort of background static. It's the oldest light in the universe. On August 21st, 2019, NASA's NICER telescope on the International Space Station observed its brightest X-ray burst to date. The explosion, which astronomers classify as a Type 1 X-ray burst, released as much energy in 20 seconds as the sun does in nearly 10 days. The detail NICER captured on this record-setting eruption will help astronomers fine-tune their understanding of the physical processes driving the thermonuclear flare-ups of it and other bursting pulsars. It is located about 11,000 light-years away in the constellation Sagittarius. It spins at a dizzying 401 rotations each second and is one member of a binary system. Its companion is a brown dwarf, an object larger than a giant planet, yet too small to be a star. A steady stream of hydrogen gas flows from the companion toward the neutron star, and it accumulates in a vast storage structure called an accretion disk. As the burst started, nicer data showed that its X-ray brightness leveled off for almost a second before increasing again at a slower pace. The researchers interpret this stall as the moment when the energy of the blast built up enough to blow the pulsar's hydrogen layer into space. The findings were published by the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Find out more at ParabnormalRadio.com. This is Brad Bernard's Parabnormal News. In 1973, in one of the first and most famous cases of alien abduction, two men claim a UFO appeared in the sky above the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. A real bright beam, bright beam appeared all over us, but it kind of blinded me for a second, and when I got my vision back, I seen three bulky-looking creatures coming toward us. There's no topic too deep for this show, especially when it leads into paranormal. Pascagoula tonight, 1973 abduction in Mississippi. Calvin Parker is one of the uh, experiencers, him along with Charles Hickson. He was telling us of the story of this female alien with a southern accent with its hand down his throat. And a telepathic uh, communication that they are not here to harm us. What happened next? Well, she pulled her hand out. Then she telepathically communicated they wasn't here to hurt us. And then uh, she made a noise in her throat. This is the only noise I could hear that was verbal. And it's like the mating call of an alligator, if you ever heard one of them. It just travels all through everywhere. And this big, ugly creature in the corner, he just came alive. He jumped up like a jack-in-the-box and come back over to me and grabbed me by the arm. And that's when I heard another little hoof of air. And it was another injection, I think. And he levitated me up, carried me out the door, put me down at the riverbank, facing the river with my hand stretched out. 
And that's when I heard, first heard Charlie, you know, that I knew he was there too. He said, Calvin, Calvin, you okay, son? And I thought, well, no, I'm not okay. You know, I was sitting here fishing, thinking about eating, and I got a, abducted by something. And to me, this was a crime. I mean, I didn't really like her after all this. It would have been better in my imagination than what it would have been there. So, uh, you know, Charlie and I sat and talked about it for a little while, and we agreed not to tell nobody. But this is just the starting of the story. It leads on into a yeah. lot of different things. So let's uh, pause right there and bring in Philip Mantle, who's a UFO researcher, author, publicist, and lecturer. His interest in UFO research began in 1979 when he joined the British UFO Research Association and Yorkshire UFO Society. He is the publisher and uh, with Flying Disc Press, and it's good to have you here, Philip. Yeah, good evening, Jeremy. Good evening to you all the way from uh, the United Kingdom, where it is the middle of the night. Appreciate you being up. Uh, now, what do you make of what uh, Calvin has told us? I'm sh- sure it's a story you've heard time and again. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it is um, unique in a, in a lot of ways, but although there are then also similarities with other accounts from different parts of the world, you know, it's fascinated me ever since I first read about it in, in the in the 1980s. Uh, in, a, in a magazine here in the UK. And, and of course, Calvin's story differs uh, slightly from Charlie's story. As Calvin just, just told you, that, you know, a couple of the differences. So this is not two, two gentlemen who, who, for whatever reason, have sat down and concocted a story and said, right, we'll, we'll both tell the same tall tale. But because they don't, you know, it's something different. And... It's not just the, the the encounter on the river that is unique. It's how both Charlie and Calvin reacted thereafter uh, and how this encounter, you know, uh, impacted their lives, literally, for the rest of their lives. As Calvin has explained, he basically went on the run. You know, he, he married Waynette and he would shy away from it at every opportunity only occasionally lifting his head above the parapet, whereas Charlie Hickson, who was, of course, uh, somewhat uh, older than than Calvin, Charlie was 42 at the time, Calvin was only 18, almost 19, and um, but he reacted in a totally different way. He thought that uh, he was been selected, you know, he's special in that respect, uh, I suppose, say special in inverted commas, and that something dramatic was going to happen, not just to him, but to us. You know, I want to say us, I mean mankind. Uh, and he was preparing for that. He had no idea what this was, but he was confident that that something was going to happen to, to, to the rest of humanity as a result of this encounter, or this encounter was part of it. So Charlie would go and speak at UFO conventions. He would speak to the media. You know, he had correspondence and mail from all over the world. Uh, you know, he'd even go and do and talk at your local church hall. Um, he went on to co-author his own book in 1983 with a college professor called William uh, Mendes. And, um, you know, his own encounter, his side of the story is featured there. Um, so it was just fascinated me ever since I first read about it. And, again, like I said, it's not just what happened on the night. 
It's what happened to these two gentlemen afterwards that is, is equally as fascinating and how it actually affected them and their lives. Yeah, now you have uh, examined some of the evidence uh, yourself, is that correct, uh, Philip? Yeah, I mean, when, when I first contacted Calvin, it wasn't to write a book. I would, I, I'd got permission to republish uh, Charles Hickson's uh, book, UFO Contact at Pascagoula. And I thought it would be a nice thing to have an interview with Calvin uh, and perhaps slot that in the back of the book somewhere, just to think, bring things a bit up to date. Because um, Charlie Hickson passed away in 2011. So once we decided to go down the book route, I asked Calvin if he had any documentation, photographs, illustrations, and he had nothing pretty much because Hurricane Katrina had taken it all. It washed it all away. So whilst we were preparing the manuscript, what we also did was launch a, a, a search for some of this lost information, documentation. For example, on when this encounter happened, I think it was just within the next day or so, Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Dr. James Harder appeared on the scene at their own uh, expense. And both Charlie and Calvin were hypnotised by Dr. James Harder and examined. And Dr. Allen Hynek, of course, was a, uh, an astronomer by profession, but he was also the scientific consultant to the United States Air Force Project Blue Book, which was their official UFO study, which had just been made into a, a you know a, a fictional drama series. And before he went back home, you know, Dr. Hynek held a press conference and said these two gentlemen are the, are the real McCoy, so to speak, and then they should be treated, you know, with respect. So we knew information was out there. Um, so we set about asking both organisations and individual researchers who were active at the time, you know, going back to 1973, if they had anything. And, of course, Alan Hynek set up the Centre for UFO Studies, so they were our first port of call, and they provided a file that they had, and in this file is, is, a, is a very curious letter. It's typewritten, so it's not done on a, a, a word processor, it's the old typewriter, and it's just a one-page document. We think it was written by Dr. James Harder, and it mentions that he gave both Charlie and uh, Calvin a physical examination and uncovered, and I quote, puncture wounds on both gentlemen. Now, you've heard Calvin talk earlier about him feeling this, this pinprick and this whoosh of air. You know, it, was that the, you know, was that the time that these puncture wounds appeared? So we have things like that documentation and a whole host of, of other uh, material. Then when Calvin... Uh, started to go public with his book. Perhaps the most um, fascinating information is not bits of paper, but other eyewitnesses. Now, Calvin did a local spot on television. Uh, someone posted that on, on online and uh, on YouTube. And somebody left a comment underneath this little news clip. And it said, oh, my mum and dad were there that night. They were on the opposite side of the river. <laughs> and they saw it too. So I contacted this person. Uh, she gave me the telephone number of her mum and dad, who was, you know, both still around, uh, although they lived down in, in Alabama, not that far away, I'm led to believe. And we've spoken to them both. Uh, that's Mr. and Mrs. Blair. 
Mr. Blair sadly is, is very ill at the moment, but we, we interviewed him last year. A colleague of mine by the name of Dr. Irina Scott also interviewed them. And they said, yeah, uh, you know, Vernon, Mr. Blair, worked in the fishing industry and he was on the opposite side of the river waiting for a, for a boat to come in. It was very late. So, you know, he was having a, you know, a sleep in the back of the car. When they saw the blue lights hovering and moving around over where Calvin and Charlie were, they didn't know they were there, of course. And then the boat finally arrived and Mrs. Blair told me they were walking up towards the boat by this time, it's, it's very dark, and there is a splash, and I mean a big splash in the river next to her, literally. So she looks down, and she said, you know, Philip, she said, there was a, a strange grey man in the water, and he went under the water and never came back up. Now, Mr. Blair said, you know, he heard the splash, but, you know, he didn't see the creature. So she threw his belongings onto this boat. Now she had to go back down the pier <laughs> and she was scared and she ran. Now it's only within the past few months that Mr. Blair um, admitted that he did in fact see this this creature, this being, this this humanoid he calls it. And he said, not only did I see it, I saw it going back across the water and I, he said, I saw the UFO lift off. And I've spoken to him about it. We have him, you know, on the record telling us about it. And and he hadn't, like Calvin, he admitted seeing the blue lights, but he, he hadn't even told his wife that he'd seen this humanoid that he calls it. Uh, and she was none too pleased, but he was ill. So, she, you know, she, she, she calmed down somewhat. Then we also have another gentleman by the name of, of Louis Lee, Again, he was on the other side of the river that night, but he was working. He was working in one of the shipyards, and he was a crane operator. And um, I remember I spoke to him on the telephone, and he said, Philip, he said, he said, my cab on the crane was about 10 or 12 feet from the ground. He says, and as soon as I got in it, I could see this thing out across the river. I can't do a, a, a Mississippi accent, I'm afraid, but he said to me, it was the darndest thing you ever did see and he watched it for some for some time and the only reason he took his his eyes off it is because he had something on the end of his crane and his colleague was shouting at him so he didn't want to drop the his his, his uh, whatever he had on his on his colleague and hurt him so he said I, I did whatever i had to do and i turned back and this thing had gone now you know, Mr. Lee had told his family and close friends about this, but he'd never gone public with it. And it's just by by coincidence, he was at the book signing that Calvin mentioned, and he bought a book. And he mentioned something to Calvin, but then he was gone. So we didn't even have his name, but fortunately somebody was taking photographs. And there was Mr. Lee stood in front of, you know, the table buying a book. So we, we posted the photograph on social media uh, and a lady came forward and said, yeah, I know who he is and I'll speak to him for you. And and, and then we went on to, to speak. And, and, and there's more, you know, these are just uh, a, a couple, but, you know, but probably the most important. Uh, but there were others that, be, but see, where this incident happened, he's not out in the middle of nowhere. Calvin will tell you, there's the bridge goes over the river. I think it's Highway 90. So and it's not like Roswell in the middle of the desert, you know. Um, so we knew from from um, Charlie Hickson's book 
because in Charlie's book there is a couple of witnesses there, so we we, we suspected that there there may well be other witnesses, um, but we certainly got a surprise with the not with the just the amount, but where they were actually located and, and what they observed themselves firsthand. Now the documentary that Calvin mentioned is is done, it's made, uh, it is very accurate. It, not only does he do the speak to Calvin just by sheer coincidence. The producer of it is a chap called Jay Michael. And Jay also lived or did live in Mississippi and he saw something on the same night, although he was some distance away. I think he lived about 100 miles from Pascagoula and he was a a high school student at the time. But he saw something that night himself. So it's kind of a road trip for him. He starts off with the documentary and tells you what he saw and then he interviews some of the witnesses and then he, you know, he speaks to Calvin as well. So the documentary is very accurate and, and that will be out next year. So, you know, and we've also got news cuttings and we have correspondence between researchers. There was a very sceptical gentleman around at the time called Philip Class. We found his archive of material. So, you know, both witnesses and, and, and things related to this incident. For example, you know, Calvin mentioned that um, there's a, a possible movie in in, in, uh, in the works. Well, unbeknown to any of us, in 1976 in Italy, um, the t- TV company called Rai, R-A-I, made a two-part television movie about the Pascagoula incident, and it's called Extra. And you cannot, you, you can find it online, but I even have extra in two parts, literally arrived today on DVD. I cannot speak any Italian, um, but there's, uh, just for Calvin's ears, the gentleman, the actor that plays him is somebody called Luca Dal Fabro. He plays Calvin Parker. Now, you know, Calvin was totally unaware of that. There's no mention of this in, in Charlie's book either. So what else will turn up, Jeremy? Your guess is as good as mine. It really is. Calvin, what does it mean to have these additional witnesses uh, come forward to validate what you know you experienced? Well, you know, it was no doubt in my mind what had happened, but it meant so much for them to come forward and put their names on the line and to give the uh, general public just an idea that I wasn't the only crazy one out there. And these people are legitimately not crazy. I took time to check them all out myself. I live down here by them. I know know them now on a personal level. You know, this is good, honest, hardworking people that all they want to do was just, like me, get a job and work. And uh, they're just good down-to-earth people. And it felt really good for them to come forward. And by them coming forward... It's also helped me down here on the coast because, you know, we have a lady, Rebecca Davis, that puts on a lot of book signings. Matter of fact, we got one Thursday of this week, and uh, she knows a lot of different people. And I was able to meet uh, the the person that owned the uh, Shaw Peter shipyard where we was fishing that night. He's 90, 90-something years old now. And uh, I got to meet him and several more different people that was around in this time period. And every one of them's always said, you know, we've 
always known you have seen something, but like you, we just couldn't say nothing about it. And that makes you feel pretty darn good about it. And makes me wonder why I kept my mouth shut for 45 years. Maria Blair, in an interview, who was one of the witnesses that Philip was telling us about, uh, said that she noticed that this light uh, was moving and not making a sound for about 30 minutes. What is your recollection of how long this lasted? You know, it's really hard to tell. What I do know is when we got there, it was a good full moon night. And I'm going to say probably around 5, and when we left the sheriff's department, that was around 11. Now, all that time wasn't spent aboard that craft. I'm going to say probably 40, 45 minutes might have been spent on the craft. I'm not just real sure. You know, I can't say very positive about how long we was really in there. Can I just interject there, Jeremy? I mean, one of the curious things that – Charlie and Calvin did, of course. Neither of them had a watch on. Neither of them had a watch. I don't think Calvin even wears a watch to this day. And, of of course, when the the sheriff's department came out to meet them and and escort them into town almost, the um, Calvin will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but they stopped at the the newspaper office and looked through the window. They weren't looking for a journalist, but they – thought that there was a clock on the back wall in there. Oh, certainly this is what Charlie says. They were looking to find out what time it was. They didn't know. Well, see, in Mississippi, they have blue laws. There weren't any stores or anything open where you could stop and see. And the reason we didn't wear a watch is working around metal. You're slinging a sledgehammer all day long. And uh, one just won't stand up to it. And then... uh, the only place that we could see lights on, and it was on the way to the sheriff department, and the sheriff was right there in front of us, was this Mississippi Press building. And they got a big window, but I've noticed their clocks don't work in there. Of course, they're not there anymore, but apparently they didn't work because we still didn't know what time it was. Just give me another example of what was happening that night as well, Jeremy. I, I spoke to the police dispatcher who was on duty that night, he's now uh, retired, uh, and he estimated that he took around 50 calls that evening of UFO sightings. And when he came off duty and went back to the police station, and this kind of links into someone else you're speaking to tonight, he said there was even a a clergyman, a pastor, uh, in the police station also reporting it. And there were others there as well. So it wasn't just a handful of people that saw things that night. It was an awful lot. Calvin, did you, were you put in or taken into the water? Were you wet? No. Do you remember? You... No, sir, I wasn't wet. Uh, this craft landed in behind us close to where my car was parked. Now, something else that happened that was amazing, and uh, I never did get the insurance form from the sheriff department, but uh the windows on the passenger side was shattered in place. And then when we Charlie opened his door, that one fell out. Now, another thing, and my brother-in-law reminded me, because I took his car over there and left it parked in the field for a long time. And I don't, I don't know what they'd done with it because it was a fairly new car, but it was useless. He said, well, did you mention to anybody about the burn marks on top of the car? 
I said, well, look, Hosey, I didn't know it was any burn marks on top of the car. He said, yeah, we got out and looked at the car real good. But when I went to put my keys in, I did notice one thing. The door was, uh, it was like a magnet toward the car. You know, it will pull your keys in there to it. And the car didn't run. It had graphite spark plug wires in it. And the reason the car was running real bad, a part of it, we had to stop and get spark plug wires before I went back to Laurel, was uh, that graphite, any kind of magnetic field or something, pulls this graphite apart. And that affected the way that the car run. It just wouldn't run right. So, you know, it's a lot of little things that uh, I think about now that I didn't think about then. All I could think about then is getting getting back home, getting away from Mississippi Gulf Coast. Calvin, what was the media coverage like uh, in the immediate aftermath of this incident? Well, the next morning... Charlie and I got up and went to work as usual. We was planning on working. And I noticed, of course, this was my second day there. I noticed in the parking lot, it was full. We brassed in, and that's the same thing as punching the time clock. We got brassed in, and uh, we was called to the office within five minutes after we was in. The owner of the comp- company, J- Johnny Walker, said that, uh, look, we cannot conduct any kind of business whatsoever today we can't use our phones y'all have this whole dang place shut down he didn't say it that nice and we've got to give some kind of press release out y'all can't go out and work in the uh, yard because everybody's gonna want to talk to y'all and find out what went on hold that thought calvin silenced after returning to his workplace after the pascagoula abduction in 1973 he's joining us with philip mantle from the united kingdom And we'll continue right after this. Pascagoula tonight on Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. We're on all the apps you know and love. Just search Into the Paranormal on your favorite apps or click right there on ParanormalRadio.com. I noticed they kind of moved mechanical-wise, and they was floating off the ground. Floating off the ground. By the time we stood up and turned around, they was there on us. They were having an easy time catching catfish. They didn't realize they'd be the next one snared. So two of them got a hold of Charlie. One of them got a hold of myself. And instantly I felt like that all. I just got relaxed. There's no topic too deep for this show, especially when it leads into the paranormal. Nineteen seventy-three Pascagoula River, Mississippi. Calvin Parker, Charles Hickson are fishing, although they do much more than just fish on this evening. They're taken from the shore, they're taken up into a craft, they're probed on board that craft. They make it to a phone they call the sheriff. They're then 
interrogated at the sheriff's office. Now, second day on the job, Calvin returns to work, and they're hauled into the office. And basically, what had happened is the media uh, had basically taken over the town. They had, and it wasn't just local media, it was national media. They was from everywhere. They had these little deals, uplinks on top of their trucks, and they was out in the parking lot with them things going up and uh, sending signals back to wherever the world they send them to. So he pretty much told us, you know, y'all going to have to give a press release, and he furnished his own shipyard attorney to come in. And, of course, I didn't talk too much. I I, I figured Charlie had broke the news. He might have stayed up and called somebody, but that wasn't the case. But uh, I know they did get a hold of it. Later on, I figured out it was through police scanners. Anyhow, they worked up the press release, and then that's when the sheriff came over, said, we're going to have to get y'all checked out. So they took us to the Sangin River Hospital and got an examination. And they did blood work. They did all kind of stuff. They looked at our arm where we had the puncture marks. And that doctor that did this, Dr. Bosco, is still alive today. And he's 99 years old. And then uh, they told us he thought we was free from giving anybody any kind of disease or anything. Then we went to Kessler Air Force Base and got checked for radiation. Now, the sheriff drove us to Kessler. And they just flagged us on through the gate like they knew something was wrong or something was going on, and they was on a mission. When we pulled up to that dock at the back, there was six guys in hazmat suits. They asked us, stepped out of the car, and told everybody else to get back. Well, they checked us for radiation, decided it was pretty much clear, and said they want to see y'all. There's a conference room in the back. Walk down this hall. And I remember walking down that hall thinking I never was going to get there. That was one of the longest walks because I was scared. I was tired. And I I hadn't talked to my family. I didn't know how they was going to react. But we got back and we was treated. There was some Air Force officials there. And the mayors of the local cities, we have three little local cities down here. And the police department from all the coast cities. And we was treated with the greatest respect anybody could be treated in. Now, I let Charlie be the mouthpiece pretty much. I talked a little bit. And uh, there's actually, I think Philip actually has a copy of the minutes from that meeting. So when they got through, they said, y'all can go. Well, on the way back, make a long story short, we got in the car with the sheriff, and he told us, he said, oh, Y'all don't leave. There's someone that needs to talk to you. And this person was John Allen Hynek and Dr. Harder. Now, how they made it down that fast, I don't know. And I got to be friends with his son when we was in Arizona. And I asked uh, Paul Hynek, I said, how did your dad make it down that fast? He said he had to be already there on his way or somehow. But it's just like magic, you know. Getting the news out, everybody knew about it. Uh, all the important people showed up to the ball game, and Heineck uh, interrogated. I wouldn't call it an interrogation. Heineck took me in a room, and uh, Harder took 
Charlie in a room to start with. And Heineck, uh, and like I say, not an interrogation, but he asked some pretty intelligent questions, I thought. And then we changed up, and I went back with Harder, and he gave me a physical exam, and Heineck talked to Charlie. And then uh, he asked us to stay around till the next day. He wanted to go out and look at the site. And I remember the next morning when we seen him, he uh, was upset because the sheriff department or the police department didn't wrap off this like a crime scene with tape so he could get in and investigate and maybe find something. And by that time, this site was wrapped up with news media. Everybody had beat beaters out there and you know nobody guarding the evidence as i would say so you know it could have been handled a lot different but in their defense nobody knew how to handle something like this back in so after that and after seeing heineck again of course i've told everybody i got hard fired in the physical all in the same day so you know, that was the end of my career at the shipyard. And I guess it was probably the end of Charlie's. I never talked to him too much after this. You know, I seen him on occasions. And, uh, but we never really talked about what happened. And when the, the Philip class, class deal come in, you know, we was at lunch and uh, Philip was real intimidating toward Charlie. He wasn't saying too much to me. And he kind of made me mad. And I got us thrown out of the restaurant because. Because, you know, regardless of what he was saying about Charlie, Charlie was there with me. He was the one eyewitness that was an eyewitness that I could count on. And uh, at the time, I didn't know all these other people were there. We had been through something spectacular together. And, you know, I felt like I owed it to Charlie just to really get on to Phillip's case. And that was the bottom line of it. Philip, do you think that having J. Allen Hynek investigate this uh, adds more credibility to Calvin's story and Charles' story? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, Dr. Hynek was well-respected both in the scientific community uh, as well as the UFO community. Shortly after this, of course, he launched his own um, civilian UFO research group, the Center for UFO Studies. And um, we have confirmed both with colleagues that worked with him um, at that time and later, plus, you know, with his son, Paul Hynek, who uh, is now on friendly terms with Calvin, that this incident, this incident at Pascagoula, out of the hundreds that Dr. Hynek investigated, both as part of the official Air Force study and his own studies in civilian life, this one was his his favourite. And the one thing we have not been able to locate, although we got a file from the Centre for UFO Studies, we have been, again, reliably informed by several people who worked with Dr. Hynek that he had his own file on this case, and it's one of the few files that he actually took home with him, and it wasn't left in the office with the rest of them. And, of course... When he passed away, the, the file, you know, melted away into obscurity. Um, I believe I know who had the file, but again, he's since 
passed away. So we, we are on the hunt for that particular file. Uh, there may be nothing out of the ordinary in it, but, you know, um, we don't know. So it's, it's, it's one of the pieces of information and that, we're, that we're trying to track down. But we are, you know, to have Dr. Heineck attached to the, to the case in any respect can only benefit it. And um, he wasn't afraid of saying cases were fake or hoaxed or had a rational explanation. But as I said earlier, when, when Heineck left to go back home, the, the last thing he did was hold a press conference and say that these two gentlemen were, were, were the genuine article. And in subsequent years at, uh, at various places where he was speaking, for example, we we have a a tape-recorded event that he, he spoke at, uh, I think it was 1976 in Canada. And it's a long lecture, but part of the lecture uh, is devoted particularly to this encounter. And we had the permission to use that. It's not in the public, do- it wasn't in the public domain until recently. It's one of these things, it was a tape recording that had, you know, been sat in someone's drawer for, for years. And so we we transcribed that particular part of it. And again, you know, he says, so this is, you know, three years after the event, he's still saying this was the genuine article, you know, and he gives his reasons why. Um, one of the things that Calvin hasn't mentioned tonight, but has on previous occasions, of course, and it's a central theme of, of the encounter is that when they were at the sheriff's department, they were interviewed separately, but then they were placed in a room together, Charlie and Calvin, and there was a desk there, and they were left alone for a few moments. Unbeknown to both of them, there was a tape recorder playing in that desk, and um, one of the deputies came and retrieved it, and they thought, right, well, we'll have them now. You know, we'll have them tape recorded, you know, laughing and joking about this foolish stunt. But, of course, when they played it back, um, that wasn't the case. They were still talking about what happened to them, how they were going to tell their families, how 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 frightened they both were, yeah, and and they had no idea. Calvin, I think, says he needed something for his nerves to calm him down, or something to that effect. So that when the when the police department, sorry, the sheriff's department, heard this, it's, it's been now called the secret tape because it was at the time. It kind of made them change their attitude towards them, and of course. Charlie and Calvin were totally oblivious to this tape, but it was played to Dr. Heineck when he visited them down there as well. So he had access to it. So, again, you know, when you put all these things together, Jeremy, um, from from the incident that happened, how the gentleman reacted afterwards, they first phoned Keesler Air Force Base, who said, we don't investigate UFOs anymore, phoned the sheriff. So they phoned the sheriff, were interviewed both separately and secretly by the sheriff. Then you have Heineck and Harder coming down. You have the press onslaught. Then you have the way that both gentlemen reacted afterwards, not just in the days, but I'm talking down the years. And then you bring it right up to date. Whereas just by chance, because Calvin's now gone public, others that were in and around the area that night have now stepped forward. And every single one of them, Jeremy, by the way, that has contacted us has allowed us to use their real name. Um, We can use pseudonyms, of course, but they've all said, no, you know, enough's enough. Calvin's been brave enough to step forward. Now it's our turn. 
you know, and, and by all means, we'll go on the record. So when you put all that together, and one last thing, you know, that people may be not aware of is that the town of Pascagoula itself um, earlier this year uh, erected a historical marker near the scene to commemorate the event in both Charlie and Calvin's name, and it was unveiled by the mayor, which again, you know, is totally unique to any event that I'm aware of. So when you put all that in a in a line, it makes this incident that happened in 1973 to be, without a doubt, the best documented close encounter on the record. And I've, I've said that in public, it's, I've said it in Calvin's book, and I stand by that. And, uh, you know, make of it what you will. I really appreciate your perspective, Philip. Thank you so much for joining the show tonight. My pleasure. You know, I can't stress enough how authentic this case is. Uh, you know, I don't put usually my reputation behind many a tale that we bring you here on the program. But the amount of evidence that we have here, the additional documentation and the additional witnesses that have come out in this case uh, are just absolutely the tipping point for me as far as that is concerned. And joining us now, along with Calvin Parker, is Stefanos Panagiotakis. Hey, How are you doing, Stefanon? I'm very fine. I'm very glad I'm here, the voice of my friend Calvin Parker. It's good to hear yours, too. And, you know, something else that come up talking about the news release, the very next day, Sheriff Fred Diamond, which was a pretty hard-nosed sheriff, gave a press release to the papers. He says, I know without a doubt there's something that happened to these guys because they were scared to death. And uh, that you can get that offline right there. Now, Stephanos began his career as a radio officer in the Greek Merchant Navy in 1973. He retired in 1998, and in 1979 joined the Greek UFO team Phaethon and was appointed as a researcher and investigator of UFO cases outside of Greece. He was an independent reporter for the first Greek UFO magazine, and he's the author of The Road to Pascagoula, a research trip, 1981. That's the name of the book. It was about eight years after the encounter. Um, that year, after accidentally finding himself in Pascagoula, he went on to uh, research the incident. What did you find, Stephanos? I find uh, a new witness, a witness who was uh, well known there, but he refused to speak. He was uh, uh, he, he was speaking only to Mr. Heineck on the telephone. He refused to meet him in person, and he told me just a few a few things, not details, but. Uh, I was very lucky I met this man because he was from a Greek origin. And he opened the door and he opened his mouth and he told me everything, what happens to him and to his companion. Uh, about uh, half an hour before the, this strange craft starts to descend and arriving in front of Calvin and Charlie. So did did he did they have an encounter prior to Calvin and Charlie's? Yes, he was. Uh, uh, it was Mister Sigalas 
the name of this witness, Emmanuel P. Sigalas. He was born in USA, but they, his parents were, they are coming from Greece, from the island of Kefalonia. And uh, that, that very day, he was uh, in a car with uh, Mr. Raymond Brodas and uh, a young girl, Miss Joan Hallmark. And they were driving, they heading for a place, a, pla- a place where they visiting every Thursday in order to, to preach uh, people who cannot control their habit for alcohol. And while they're driving, they notice, the, the, the little girl first notice a, a, a cylindrical, on the, on the left side of the car, a cylindrical object uh, which seemed to follow them. Uh, the girl, the girl uh, Sigalas has saw, uh, didn't pay much attention, he saw it, but the girl asked him and said, Mr. Sigalas, I think I see something up in the sky. And... Sigalas told her that it might be a helicopter which goes to Kistler Air Force Base. It's a base uh, very close to Pascagoula, just outside, near to Biloxi, uh, in the middle between Pascagoula and, and uh, Biloxi. And Mr. Sigalas asked his friend, they say, hey, Ray, what might this thing might be? Because uh, it doesn't look like an helicopter and uh, it it was a type of craft that, uh, that has uh, no any, uh, you know, lights like the airplanes or the helicopters. It didn't act like a helicopter or like a, a craft, uh, aircraft. And while they're driving, the opt- uh, this object following this car, and it was uh, in a height about uh, 3,000 feet. Mr. Sigalas tried and he slowed the speed of the car. And the object did the same thing. And when he increased the speed, the object sped up as well. So it, this thing is this this uh, thing is keep doing about ten miles. And after a while, as they turned towards Van Cleef, the place where destined to go, uh, the object stopped, dived towards the car a little bit, and then disappeared. And it was a very strange object, as Mr. Sigalas told me. And it has an extension, something like a fringe pointing out in the direction of about two o'clock on its main body. And he also told me that uh, this object was covered by bra- bright, a very bright light, and uh, his shape was oval. He tried to understand exactly what it was, but it was in vain. The little girl told him, oh, Mr. Sigalas, I think I saw God because Mr. Sigala was a priest, eh? and he said to her, oh, don't worry, but be sure of that. Uh, uh, who is in this world is capable to build such a thing? And what uh, Mr. Sigala told me about the object they saw, the object take, uh, as I told you before, uh, it's co- it changed course and headed tr- toward the uh, Sopiter shipyard where Calvin and Charlie they are fishing at this time. I don't know what they're fishing. They're fishing nothing, as they said. They were very unlucky <laughs> that day, and so they became the fishes of of other creatures. This is the story. With this, uh, what I found with um, this uh, witness 
in Pascagoula. And a few, two days after, I met uh, Charles Hickson in person at his home. All right, so we'll pause there and we'll come back, and I want you to tell about your interview with Charlie Hicks and Stefanos Panagiotakis is my guest. I'm Jeremy Scott, along with Calvin Parker, Pascagoula tonight, our story, and we'll be right back. Save your data and listen for free by calling 701-719-9703, courtesy of TalkStream Live. news. I'm Brad Bernards. NASA is currently on alert as all eyes are on a space rock that's hurtling towards Earth at an alarming speed of 18,000 miles per hour. According to a report, the asteroid would be nearest the Earth on November 21st. What's alarming is that the asteroid is classified as an Apollo, which is considered to be the most dangerous class of space rock that's set to cross the Earth's orbit. The asteroid's path is too close for comfort and can actually change course and bring it closer to the planet. If things get worse, it can cause damage that's similar to the Yarkovsky effect. According to the report, the Yarkovsky effect is when the soft force of sunlight can steer asteroids into Earth-crossing orbits and drastically alter the layout of their paths across the solar system. In theory, asteroids that are larger than 35 meters across can already pose a significant threat to a town or city, so at 650 meters in diameter, this one can be considered a major problem should the asteroid change its course. As it is, the asteroid has not yet been categorized under the Torino Impact Hazard Scale. Cupid was late this year, more than eight months late. They reported they received messages that appeared to have originally been sent on or around Valentine's Day. The delay text created some awkward moments. Hundreds of people reported on social media that overnight they had received texts from partners, employers, and even dead family members that were originally meant to arrive in February. Many were sent on Valentine's Day. Some say they received messages from their ex, their dead relatives or friends, even sending a message to an employer. Some referred to receiving ghost texts. The text appeared to be sent or received from cell phones with different operating systems and a wide range of carriers, including Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon. Many users believe that only their carrier and intended message recipients have access to their texts, but the ghost text incident reveals a more complicated infrastructure. The structure has has the potential to create a number of privacy and security issues when a third-party vendor encounters glitches or has its data compromised. Interact with the news at ParabnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernard's Parabnormal News. Thank you. 
Exploring the possibilities of the subjects you've always wanted to know and those you never knew existed until now. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. The Pascagoula Encounter, 1973 in October. October 11th, 1973 on the shores in Mississippi. It was Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson who were taken and then returned and then ridiculed for their experiences. And Calvin, after 45 years, has come forward to share his story. Stefanos Panigantakis, who is telling us about his investigation uh, that he writes in The Road to Pascagoula, which was about a research trip in 1981. First, about interviewing a witness who uh, told of an encounter that predated Calvin's by about 30 minutes or so. And then you had the opportunity to interview Charles Hickson. Stefanos, what did he tell you? Yes. He told me about, uh, briefly, about what happened in Pascagoula because I asked him not to tell me the details because everybody knows what happened. And uh, he mainly focused on what what he felt about this. And the most important, he told me that uh, when these creatures, probably they were robots, the three uh, creatures that came out from the craft, they were robots. And he told me that they were, he was sure that there were creatures behind this, but at, at this time, he, he didn't realize it. Also, he told me that he saw Calvin uh, passing away at the moment when they, the one of these of the three creatures touched his uh, hand, his arm, and then uh, he started to open his heart to me and told tell me things that these creatures told him that there will be uh, when the time comes the time comes. Uh, uh, they will be revealed to the people, to the world. And also he told me that uh, this was a message from God. He he read a lot about the Bible, but he, he was not fanatic or, you understand, he accept the life in other planets, and he told me that God not only create humans, but millions of others, uh, planets carrying life like us, uh, creatures similar or like us. And he told me that God never makes mistakes because he's not a human. It, this is something which uh, impresses me a lot. He told me that, Stephanos, I know God never makes mistakes because he's not a human. And he, he, he was, say, he told to me, I, I believe in the supreme God. And he released me and sent these things to me. And the beings, there are beings from another world. And this is something God explained it to me. And when the time comes, they will be revealed and nothing can change it. Uh, also, he was very anxious about this. And and uh, at, the, at, the, at this time, Charlie wrote a book, his book with Mr. Mendes. Uh, with the assistance of Mr. Mendes. And he told me for the first time, because I think no one knew it at the time, at 1981, when I was there on July 19 of 1981, 
he told me that he, the creatures made contact with him two times after the incident in Pascagoula the next year, so 1974, two times. And one of the uh, one of this and uh, the, the second time was most uh, uh, the, all all his family was they they were witnessed, and he tried to because the craft of these beings arrived and hold it uh, above the car of uh, Hickson family, and he wanted to go out and meet these creatures, but his wife Mrs. Blanche and his uh, his son and he grab him and don't let him go out from the car. And he, he heard a voice in his inside in his mind that they say they said to him, Charlie, don't worry. Uh, there will be another time when we meet again. So he was ready to accept this. He, he also told me that uh, he, uh, uh, he knew that the world was destroyed five times before, and this is going to be the sixth time, but it's not going to happen because these creatures are here for us, not just to avoid the human race, to destroy itself for the sixth time, the sixth time. And he also told me that all all the humans till now, since the day of, of the creation till now, uh, they they were born and died five times. And he also and this is the last time. Then the creatures will appear to the uh, in the human race. But first, they they must be prepared for this. And when when the time comes, he will go to the national television and say about. Now Charlie is dead; he's passed away. And personally, I believe that he never died. They he is with his friends now. All the details are in my book because I spoke with Charlie for three hours, and these three hours are in my book. What he told me, he told me many, many things. Uh, we don't have the time to discuss it yes. now, or to tell to the people. And also in my book, there are my my contact with uh, Mr. Sigalas and other witnesses and other uh, local people from Pascagoula. And I heard, I heard many, many stories that happened just after the incident in Pascagoula, after the incident of Charlie, with Charlie and uh, Calvin. Many people start to see things. And the whole America started, because a, a, a very UFO flap, a very big flap, started from Gulf of Mexico and arrived up to Canada. There happened many stories. I appreciate you so much, Stefanos, for coming on. He's joining us from Greece, so it's really, really late, and so I really do appreciate that. We got a special treat for you. There was a – well, of course, you know the story. We've been telling the story, and it certainly has attracted a lot of attention since Calvin first came out last year in 2018. It really, it has only been a year. A Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter by the name of Johnny Cobb and uh, master guitarist Jerry McCoy have written and are going to perform for us a song inspired from this incident – Blackwater, Blue Moon. Blackwater, Blue Moon. Strange days have they been past the cool love. It was an October night, fishing on a Mississippi River bank.
light reflected coming across from my back out across the water. A real bright beam appeared all over us. It kind of blinded me for a second, and when I got my vision back, I seen three bulky-looking creatures coming toward us. Telepathically told me, you know, don't be afraid, we're not going to hurt you. You can't really pin everything down, you don't really know. And that's the point I'm holding now. I don't know what happened, I know something happened. Right here, Blackwater, Blue Moon, Johnny Cobb with us right now. Hello, Johnny. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the program. Uh, that's a hell of a song you and uh, Jerry uh, wrote and, and performed for us. Well, I greatly appreciate it. It was truly inspired by Calvin. And uh, I just we just I just felt compelled. That I've been listening to Calvin to give the interviews over the last couple of years. And, and I was actually familiar with the case uh, when it happened in, uh, in the 70s. And uh, just hearing him give these interviews, I just was drawn to to try to do something more than just listen. And uh, I'm just so glad that uh, he accepted the song. And, and as you can tell, he, he made a cameo appearance on it. Hey, Calvin, did you ever think you'd be featured in a song? Never did I think that. And I really <laughs> love this song, too. I was just thinking while we was listening to it, talking about a good country and western song would be the female alien <laughs> they get the big curve, <laughs> but this is be. a great song. I enjoy Thank you, it. I appreciate My it. wife really loves it. I'm about ready to throw that CD I made out the window sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been playing it on repeat, I, I, I guess, Calvin. Uh, she has, yeah. I li- I listen to it. You know, you can only hear a good thing so many times, and me trying to drive sometimes. And she turns it wide open. I mean, it sounds like a bar room. You pulled up beside these cars where these rappers and all's got their music up. We drowned them out. But I enjoyed the song, and I really appreciate Johnny and Jerry doing this. They don't know how much. Well, well I, I tell you, we, we greatly appreciate you accepting it and embracing it. And, and Wayne is just a wonderful woman. And, you know, I, I want to give credit to, to Philip, too, because – uh, Philip and I became Facebook friends, and over the past few months, we've been exchanging uh, email, uh, not emails, but Facebook um, uh, private messages. And basically, when um, Philip brought up this title, Blackwater Blue Moon, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's the title that, that we could write a song for Calvin about the whole story. And uh, so Philip actually triggered that thought of uh, inspiring a, a song title, and then from that point on, uh, Jerry and I got together over the phone. Jerry lives in North, in um, Arkansas, and I live in North Carolina. He has his studio there. I have mine here. And uh, we basically wrote the song Long Distance, 
And once we had it to where I could actually put a vocal down, uh, I, I did the vocal here, sent it to him. Then as he was actually putting um, all the music together, Jerry played all the guitar parts, the bass, the drums, the background vocals. Uh, I put together a little video that I actually could go on YouTube and uh, and do a search for Blackwater Blue Moon, the Calvin Parker story by Johnny Cobb and Jerry McCoy on YouTube. You can see the video. And then um, Calvin and, and Phillips said, you know, you should make this song available for, for people to download. I was like, well, if it's okay with you guys, that'd be wonderful. So um, a few weeks ago, we got to notice that Amazon Music is uh, it has it where you can download it there. And, and actually, all the digital platforms has it available now. And um, But I, I just want to tell Calvin, I, I've listened to him so many times on interviews that writing the lyrics of this song just is a songwriter's dream. It, the lyrics just flowed out, and it was just uh, it was a labor of love, and I, I greatly appreciate his 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 kudos on and everything and really happy Johnny, to be here. I appreciate you buddy and hopefully Thank if you. it's a movie I'm hoping this will be the theme song on the movie of course once you oh sign God. your rights away or something you don't have much choice but uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make the title of the movie out of this plus make this the theme song on the movie I've got to okay. where when I do a uh, interview of some kind I get them to play the song you know the in and out and then oh, wow. Thursday, when I go to this book signing, I'm not going to give them a choice. I'm going to get on the uh, <laughs> police PA speaker out there and plug it up in one of their cassettes. And uh, I'm going to be playing it at the book Calvin, signing. Calvin, no, not cassettes. It's 2019, buddy. Oh, yeah. Well, I kind of live out of <laughs> I'm a little behind times. I've been in hiding so long. You know. Oh, man. Yeah, you ought to see me getting used to computers and all. I come in from doing a spreadsheet. I actually went into business for myself, and I kept everything on the old-timey spreadsheets. But I could tell you to the penny how much money I made and lost. Oh, that's, so, that's a good way of I'll, doing it. Yeah, well, this is all new to me. I mean, it's exciting. It's new. I've met some real great people, and... I'm just really looking forward to another year on it. Johnny, were you going to say something? Well, one thing that I hope that, that Calvin makes you feel like you've always known him. And I'm sure you already picked up on that, Jeremy. It's just uh, from from the private Facebook messages, basically, I kept on telling Calvin we were working on a song, but I didn't send him any any anything until the final thing it was finished. And when I finally we got everything finished and, it was on, and I put put it to the video, and I had it on YouTube. That's when I sent my private message. And said, "Well, here it is," and I didn't know I didn't know how it was going to be received because we just kind of like just did this without asking anybody's permission. And within about, I guess about an hour or so after I had sent it to him on a private message, my phone rang, and I looked down and said, "Mississippi." I went, "There's only one person I could possibly know in Mississippi," and it was <laughs> Calvin. And he, and he called he called me, man, just to to thank us, which really. That just that was wonderful. That was great. That was one of the greatest calls I've ever received. So I really do appreciate that. Well, this song's been a blessing to us. And the the way I found out is how I guess my wife stays on Facebook a lot. I heard her in there singing the song. So <laughs> I said, "Where where did you did you where did you get that song from?" Uh, and I think that's. 
I was going to say, Johnny, as a singer-songwriter, uh, you know, you were you wrote the lyrics, right, to this? Yeah, what what we do when Jerry and I, since we're long distance, when we write our thing over the phone, I basically, after I got after Philip put that thought in my mind of, you know, Blackwater, Blue Moon, I thought that, that'd be a great Calvin Parker story song. I sat here and kind of jammed around on the keyboards just to get some basic chords and a basic melody, and then I called Jerry and told him the whole thing about Calvin and, and 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 what I had an idea about how we could do a song. So Jerry's like, let's do it, man. So basically what we do, I send Jerry a little scratch vocal of me kind of scat singing what lyrics I had at that particular moment and a, and a little bit of the chord progression. I send it to him over in Arkansas. Then he starts putting together as, as, a, as a full music track. While he's doing that, I'm working on the lyrics. And when I get the lyrics finally finished, I call Jerry and go, here's what I've got. What do you think? And then he'll, as an editor, he'll go, I like this, I like that. How about changing this here or there? So basically, we got down to the point where I said, well, I don't have a second verse, but I got this concept. And I said, I don't know if Calvin's going to like this or not, but I said, I'm going to put together some sound clips of some of the interviews that I've heard Calvin do over the years because there are certain key points that that really make his story uh, complete. And so I was able to find certain sound clips and put them in an order to where Calvin kind of told the little story there in the second verse. And uh, so when I sent that to Jerry, he was like, man, this is going to be great. And so next thing I know, Jerry got the whole track recorded, got my vocals set into the track, got it mixed, sends it back over to me. I put it into the YouTube video, and then you know, send it to Calvin and, and Philip and Wynette and, and um, just keep our fingers crossed. But I, I, I'm hoping at some point that – Somehow I can meet Calvin and Philip at one of the events and maybe have the backing track there where Calvin can come up on stage and we can actually perform the song together. You know, just to just a just to have a a function where somebody well, I'd, could I'd certainly I, I'd, I'd certainly love to be there for that moment. Me too. Because <laughs> Calvin I'd said he sings the blues. It. it sounds like a lot of fun. Well, I tell you what, we're gonna we're gonna hold you because I remember the last conversation you and I had. You said something about. That you and and Travis were sitting around playing the guitar and singing, and uh, yeah. so that would be a wonderful thing. I'd love to hear you do do anything you want to sing. I can't sing, especially not in y'all's lead. But this song would be fun to do with y'all, and I pretty well know the part. Well, no, you you on. just do the second. All you have to do is the second verse, Calvin. <laughs> yeah, the second verse, and I pretty much know that because I've given probably three or four thousand interviews and it's about the same every time <laughs> johnny are there lyrics uh that stick with you more than others in this song well you know by hearing calvin tell his story and his, his story is always so heartfelt there were certain things that that he was he was saying about against his will you know uh, his whole life changed against his will and that he couldn't tell anybody not even his wife and and so those kind of lines, and these are directly out of, out of, of his interviews that I'm going, okay, there, there's some key factors here that it's kind of hard to tell somebody's entire experience in a three-minute song. But I thought, well, you know what? He was out fishing on a riverbank. And, and I would, I'm going to tell you something, man. I, I do a lot of gigs on the road where I'm driving late at night coming back. And I have to admit that I, I'll put that song on, and I'll listen to it 25 times on the way back North Carolina from Myrtle Beach after playing a gig, not because it's just me, 
but just because I'm listening to going, I really, I really do like this. <laughs> it's kind of like I'm listening yeah, to it as a, as, a, as an outsider. And uh, but Calvin inspired the lyrics, and it's, it was like a songwriter's dream to where I knew there were certain key things I wanted to say. It just matter how do I say them in the in a, in a in a way that's never been said, but at the same time be Calvin's words, like his books, where you know it's so much more enjoyable to read his book, seeing his his own words in print. And so that's that's what we want to do with the song, where it's like it's just like Calvin's telling the story, like he's singing the song. And, uh, well, Johnny, you have an amazing talent, and I really appreciate you coming on the program, uh, allowing us to play that great song. Uh, best to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jeremy. You're one of my favorite shows to listen to, and I can't wait to go to your archives and, and retrieve this and listen to it again. Oh, absolutely. We'll make sure that uh, we put this up on YouTube as well, where it will live forever. You're okay with that, Calvin, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> and, Johnny, be sure and tell Jerry thank you also. Y'all did a great job. Thank y'all. I will, and I love you, Calvin. Thank you so much for the I do appreciate it. That's Johnny Cobb and uh, Calvin Parker. Thank you so much for an out-of-this-world show. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. It's my pleasure from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I'm Jeremy Scott. Night, night, friends.